somehow we got nonsensical about drug and alcohol, about how much, how often, da 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 da. Don't care. Don't care. In my world, we define it as once I start, I can't stop. And with that knowledge, I can't not take the first one. Because it's the first one that causes the problem, right? When you get hit by a train, it's not the caboose that gets you, it's the engine that gets you. So it's their inability not to take the first drink. And then for the family system or for the loved one or the spouse, it's it's really about taking accountability of, for themselves and saying, huh, why am I tolerating this? You know, what is it about me that makes this behavior acceptable or I'm willing to accommodate it or cover it? Welcome to the Rising Beyond podcast, where you can find hope and healing after a toxic or abusive relationship. I'm Sybil Cummin, a licensed professional counselor specializing in working with victims and survivors of domestic violence and narcissistic abuse, including the youngest witnesses. Over the past decade, I have been honored to witness victims move to survivors and then to thriving in their lives. If you feel alone in your healing process, are dealing with the onslaught of post-separation abuse, or just needing some validation that you are not crazy, you are in the right place. When I asked you all what you'd like to learn about on the Rising Beyond podcast, several of you asked questions about the intersection of domestic violence and addiction, specifically alcoholism. What is the connection? Because we see so many families plagued by both. And since substance abuse can really increase the intensity of abuse and the risk of lethality, it is something we really need to understand. So I went out to find an expert. So today I'm talking with Kevin Peterson, who is the founder of the Chronic Hope Institute. During our discussion, we really identify and look at the parallels between families experiencing addiction and families experiencing domestic violence and how these intersect. So Kevin is a licensed marriage and family therapist with offices in Colorado and Florida, and he started the Chronic Hope Institute to help families that are sick and tired of being dominated by their loved one's addiction. He uses really clear and concise action planning um, through family addiction coaching to help them solve these problems for the long term and solve the family dynamic problems involved. He has two books we're going to talk about. Um, I loved this discussion, and I really hope you get as much out of it as I did. Kevin, I so appreciate you joining us on the Rising Beyond podcast today. I think we're going to have a great, great discussion. Me too. I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So we are talking about kind of the intersection of addiction and domestic violence. And so your specialty is addiction. My specialty, domestic violence. We are going to talk about how they show up together in a lot of cases. So I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about, I guess, why you decided to really work in the recovery community, if that's even what you like to call it. I know people have a lot of different language for it and kind of how you became really an expert in this field. Sure, sure, absolutely. And and one small thing, 
it's important to understand I work with families that are struggling with addiction, not with the individuals. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and because it's just a completely underserved population as you, oh, yeah. would, you know, <laughs> yes. but, but a lot of times people think, Oh, he's an addiction therapist. I'm like, well, I'm really not, you know, I'm, I don't have any special training in addiction. I'm, I'm, I have 32 years in recovery. And, and, and so I have a lot of on the job personal training. And by the way, Bert just jumped into my arms, <laughs> but yeah, sure. So how did I get into this? Well, so I grew up in California. I grew up in Palo Alto, California, which if you know anything about Palo Alto, it's this really amazing, incredible, beautiful place. It's right next to my high school was across the street from Stanford university. So you can imagine there was a slight amount of academic pressure, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you know, everything on the outside was beautiful, you know, amazing. And, my dad was very successful, had his own business. We had nice life, nice house, nice cars, nice vacations. But on the inside, it was a mess. Uh, my mom struggled severely with mental health issues, trauma, and addiction. She was addicted to uh, prescription, prescription painkillers and benzodiazepines and all sorts of stuff like that. And so I grew up in a house of addiction. And I ended up starting using drugs and alcohol when I was 13, 14 years old, started drinking and getting high, you know, more the experimentation route. But, you know, there's generally what we talk about in the addiction recovery world is there's kind of like two kinds of people, right? There's people that are like, oh, I don't like this or this makes me feel funny. And then there's people that are like, oh, where has this been? (laughs) Yeah, I was that guy (laughs) and, you know, kind of managed it for a while. I got through high school, went to college in Los Angeles at USC. By the way, this was in 1982 is when I started college, long before you were born. <laughs> I was born in 1980. Oh, no. I'm actually <laughs> much younger. Okay. There. Bonus points. <laughs> um, so I I went to college, and that's when the wheels came off for me. And and I just fell apart. And there's, I don't want, we could spend all day talking about my story of addiction and recovery. If we ever want to talk about that, I'd be happy to talk about that. But what ended up happening is that I flunked out of college, came back to Palo Alto, started bartending. And, you know, long story short, my parents called me out and they were like, you know, we love you, but we don't believe a word out of your mouth. And we're pretty sure you never graduated. Um, you're a liar, cheat thief drunk, alcoholic, drug addict. And until those things change, we're going to keep you at a distance. But the one thing, and this is kind of how I base my professional work is, they also said was, if you're willing to get help, we'll help you. It's not that old school, tough love, lock him out, never talk to him again. I don't care. I hope he's dead. Yeah. It's not that nonsense. It's, it's, hey, you're choosing a lifestyle that we're not going to support. Therefore, when you're ready to get help, we'll help you. But until then, we need to keep you, the abusive, crazy person, outside of our circle, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yep. And I think that I appreciate kind of what you had said in the beginning, even how you just started, because it is the life of so many of my audience, or maybe not now, but what it was of everything. We are the picture perfect Christmas card family and behind closed doors, everything. It's every man for himself. Yeah. You know, I mean, my sister and I talk about it today. Both my parents have passed at this point, 
but my sister and I talk about it today that we just, we thought it was normal. And, and, and we knew we were privileged and wealthy. So we were like, well, well, you know, what do you mean? This is great. And, and, you know, as we've gotten older and had families and married and all that sort of thing, you're like, huh, that was not normal. <laughs> Coming home yeah. every day from school, wondering, is mom going to be mom? Is mom going to be having a migraine and in her room mm-hmm. or is she going to be stoned? You know, glassy eyed, mm-hmm. slurring words, drooling, you know, and we never knew what we were going to get. Yeah. And and uh, so anyway. Yeah, it's even just that description is really like the, it's such a parallel experience of the walking on eggshells. We don't know what we're going to experience when we get home today. We don't know. Absolutely. <laughs> That's absolutely right. So I ended up moving to Colorado in 1995. I, I went back to school and grad, got sober in 1991, got graduated from college in 94, moved to Denver and, and Colorado in 95, ended up going back to school at Regis in 2008, got a master's in marriage and family therapy, swearing to God, I would never work with alcoholics and addicts and their families because those people are nuts. <laughs> and that's all I did. Uh, yeah. I spent three years in community mental health working in in-home family system stuff. You know, just yeah. let's get to the root cause and let's get, in, let's get in it and crisis work. And then started my own private practice in 2014. And, you know, Peterson Family Counseling exists in, in Denver, Colorado and Florida, where I live now. And, you know, we work with families that are struggling with addiction and we do have some, we do individual work also, uh, um, but we do a lot, of, a lot, a lot of what we do is families call us and they're like, ah, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and they're, and they're in one of three stages. The, um, can I swear? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. People know I cuss like a sailor. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> we call it the, oh shit stage. <laughs> like, what do I do? <laughs> and, 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 and we have a plan. And then there's the, okay, now that we've got the plan in place, now we're going to take a look at the family and really dig into the system and figure out what's going on in the system. And then the final stage is how do we bring everybody back together? So yeah, that's the quickie version of the style of work that we do, that I do, that I've created, and then I've hired some people and yeah. Yeah. So what do you see when you're working with these families if they're, and I get this is, you know, the caveat is that there is one parent that is in active addiction. Yep. What are the challenges of the protective parent? Well, that's so what you've just described. First of all, that's how I grew up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Second of all, that is 99% of my phone calls. I, actually, that's not true. It's probably 75% of my phone calls. The other 25% is my kid, you know, my, my yeah. you know, 16 year old. And by the way, just so we're super clear, I would say in almost every one of those experiences, that kid has been has threatened violence or, or some sort of what you, we would clinically call, you know, abuse environment created in an abuse environment. So yeah. totally get it. So what 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 I get is I mean, I definitely get what you're talking about. The, the, the loved one, the wife, the husband, whatever it may be coming in and saying, uh, let's just say my husband got a DUI. And, 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 and you, when you do what I do, just like when you do what you do, and they, they come in and they're like, okay, this happened. And I'm like, great, let's talk about the history because let, let's be clear. It's never the first, like, oh my yeah. God, I can't believe this. And, and literally every single family, uh, every single 
spouse will come, will sort of cough forward of, well, you know, when we first met, I mean, I knew he liked to drink. I knew he liked to do drugs. I, I just figured he'd grow out of it, you know, mm-hmm. but let's remember. So let, let's remember when we're talking about addiction and alcoholism, drugs and alcohol are literally like this much. You can't, this is a, we're on a podcast. So. Right. Just a little bit. <laughs> like just a, like a couple of inches <laughs> about drugs and alcohol. Okay. It's this much, you know, my arms are wide open about the way we behave, the way we live, the way we act and the way we treat people. And, and I want to be super clear too, that the perspective that I come from after, I mean, I'm still in recovery. I've, I've been an active you know, recovery from drugs and alcohol since 19, May 1991. And I've done a lot of my own codependency recovery work as well, because I grew up in that family system. What I like, what, what I uh, teach the families or the spouses is you're not responsible for their addiction, but you are responsible for how you respond to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I get it. I believe everything you're saying. I think everything you're telling me is the absolute truth. No questions asked. Let's start talking about how to set proper boundaries and to hold those boundaries and how to create sort of a system of consequences and rewards and and what that looks like and how I coach them in how to implement that. Because we have to we have to make things safe. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because my guess is that a lot of my audience is like shoulders raised, like insides tense. Yeah. And so I want to point this out that if the boundary setting means that you are less safe in your relationship, that is not addiction, right? If setting a boundary, you know, is going to be, you're going to get the shit beat out of you later for setting a boundary or setting a boundary means really huge repercussions for you and your children. That's something you do need to really pay attention to in this process. And I've had families like that. Let me be clear. And so when we have that environment in that situation, I'm like, okay, so part of your process is going to be engaging with law enforcement and a lawyer and et cetera, and going through all that process, you know, and, and, and being really clear and, and let's also be clear, you know, so addiction, there's a lot of, there's a, so some weird process, thought process around addiction and that we think it's caused by something else. You know, it's like mm-hmm. a byproduct mm-hmm. of X, Y, Z. And that's nonsense. Addiction is a standalone issue. You know, you either is or you isn't. It's a binary yeah. state. You don't, you don't pick it up in a public restroom or hanging out with the wrong crowd. I mean, I was the wrong crowd, but you know. That's the reality of the situation is it's a genetic, there's nature, nurture, and actually some trauma engaged in the process. But addiction is something that you have a predisposition to. I have a younger sister that grew up in the room next to me, all 100% DNA, same. And she's not an addict. She's not a drug addict. She's not an alcoholic. She, her body doesn't react to alcohol and drugs like mine does. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, so you can be an addict. And then when you talk about what you just talked about is that, that going over that line of domestic violence, you know, that's a whole other thing. Right. And, but you can mm-hmm. be both. Okay. Yes. We, yes. I, uh, most of my fans. So here's something I, I suspect. I wonder if you come across this in your world as well. What I get is these people, the families that kind of want to, well, let me do a precursor and then I'll come back to that. 
every family I work with wants to tell me an excuse or a story. I call it a cover story. You know, it's like, well, you know, he had a hard childhood or, well, you know, he really has mental health issues, not alcoholism or addiction issues, because that's not cool. You know, that's not that's not Mm -hmm. it's not okay to be an alcoholic or an addict because they think that's a choice. But having a mental health issue, we can attach that to a biological situation, which they don't understand. Addiction is biological. And so I'm like, okay, here's the thing. I totally understand what you're saying. I get this all the time. Oh, it's really not addiction. It's really his mental health issues. I'm like, okay, I hear what you're saying. I used to argue with people. Now I don't argue. Now I'm like, no, no, no. So here's the thing. We can't get to the mental health issues until we eliminate the drugs and the alcohol. And I I would suspect it's the same for you. First of all, I would suspect that the the victims are always making excuses. Yeah. And some of it is for safety, right? For safety if they're excusing. Mm -hmm. But I would say it's funny because the the excuse, I don't know if excuse is the right thing, but there's this hope that my partner's abusive because they are using substances. That that is the like the the hope yep. because otherwise there's it's really hard to be like oh there's a there's not really a reason right. <laughs> for why I'm being abused. They yep. just are entitled, and this is the way they work in their world is they abuse people. Yeah, I mean, and, and 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 again, at no point would I ever do victim blaming or any sort of excuse making. But my experience, and you're the expert, not me, but I'm very, I guess it's very much similar, that most people that are the perpetrators probably grew up in abusive, physically abusive environments on some level, you know, and that's where they learned that. And that's, so, I mean, it's the same thing with alcoholics and, and addicts, right? Is that we grew up in that environment and we're like, oh, well, this is normal, you know? And I'm not saying it's okay. It's not yeah. okay. It's 100% not okay. But if you're going to try and find some empathy at some point for anyone, it's like, oh, okay. My wife – so I have a st- I have a phrase that I always use. And my wife says we're going to make T-shirts. <laughs> and it's <laughs> uh, happy families come from happy individuals. Happy individuals work on their shit. Everybody has shit. And then my wife's like, yeah. And on the back, we're going to put – and of course, we're going to talk about your childhood because <laughs> <laughs> yes. that's where it all yes. comes from, right? Yeah. Yeah. I always say that, and I use this term very loosely, but usually someone who is abusive has a role model and that's the, the language, right? It's gross, but even if they never witnessed abuse, like they would never witness physical abuse or they never had that done to them, they have witnessed yeah. that the way you get your needs met are by harming others, mm-hmm. exploiting others, yep. and that's how you get your needs met. That's how you do it. And getting big and loud, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 being a bully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you entirely. And, and and so, what I have to do is really work with the families and get them to understand that, hey, I totally get what you're saying, and normalize that thought process on their part, right? Because, like you said, it's it's for safety, and I think there's also an element of shame. It's like Mm. They don't they don't want to admit to the fact that they've put up with this, you know, or they've yes. accepted. Yes. So in recovery, we talk about accepting unacceptable behavior, you know, and so they they but they know they're like, man, I mean, I, it's so hard for them to reach out for help to you and to me to be like, all right, you know, look, and I know I have a role to play in this. And I'm like, well, OK, yes, 
and, okay, so you don't have a role to play in their addiction or alcoholism. That's on them. And their behavior is on them. How you respond to that, that's on you. Yeah. And, and, and I get, I totally get in your world that there's a higher level of consequences, potentially, for setting boundaries yeah. and holding people accountable. And that's why, in, you know, I think for the, when I encounter that in my world, it's like, okay, first things first, we're going to go through some legal steps. Um, I, I spent my first three years out of graduate school working at Arapahoe Douglas Mental Health in on the crisis team and child and family services. So I had all the numbers memorized for the yep. uh, county services. <laughs> and I knew, like, hi, Sharon, it's Kevin. Hey, how are you? Okay, so I've got another one. Here's the deal. You know, and we'd walk yeah. through the process. And so I totally get it. But what, what I really, my, my, you know, so your, 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 our, your listeners that are like, oh, my gosh, you know, I, my partner abuses alcohol and drugs. And, and, and first of all, let's, let's not get caught up in there's some sort of this. Somehow we got nonsensical about drug and alcohol, about how much, how often. Da, 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 da. Yep. Don't care. Don't yeah. care. In my world, we define it as once I start, I can't stop. And with that knowledge, I can't not take the first one. Because it's the first one that causes the problem, right? Yeah. When you get hit by a train, it's not the caboose that gets you, right? It's it's the it's the engine that gets you. So it's their inability not to take the first drink, and then for the family system or for the loved one or the spouse, it's it's really about taking accountability of, for themselves and saying, "Huh, why am I tolerating this?" You know, what is it about me that makes this behavior acceptable or I'm willing to accommodate it or cover it? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the second phase. Once we can get a system in place of safety for everybody, then it's about digging into the family system and, and really going after that. Like, OK, so so, you know, where did you learn this? Where, where did this come from? And let me show you how to unlearn it. And let me give you some practical work on how to go about changing the behavior of the family system, not just the individual. Yeah. 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 So I talk a lot. <laughs> no, I was thinking within that family system piece, like safety is number one always, especially if you if there are kids present involved in the family, safety is number one. And so whatever that looks like, if that does look like, because there is um, coercive control and domestic violence, if that means leaving and getting things set up for you to leave safely and set up for your kids to leave safely. But something I'd love to touch on because we hear it all the time. I'm sure you have your own thoughts about how our systems, our larger systems work. Um, (laughs) But there's this idea that sobriety is like, oh, okay, so we're going to have them on sober link or we're going to have something for 30 days or 60 days. And then your family's going to be safe. What does sobriety look like in oh, real, in like the real world? What does it actually look like? So we have a we have kind of a funny phrase in the addiction world or a belief system. There's no empirical evidence to it, but every single person in recovery will be like, "Yep, that's the truth." And that is when you first started using drugs and alcohol. So me, that was 14, 13, 14. That when you get sober, and I got sober at 27, you're emotionally 14. Yes. 
So I would tell you that, you know, okay, the process of getting someone sober, let's say, let's say we have success. Let's say the family sets good boundaries. The person agrees to go to treatment. By the way, you need to go to inpatient treatment. Weekly therapy is not going to magically make this all go away. Yeah. So, uh, so they go to 30 days and then I get this a lot, by the way, is he's like, well, he's gone to 30 day treatment three times. I'm like, well, then what happens after that? They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, did he see a therapist, a psychiatrist? Is he going to 12 step meetings? Is he engaged in some sort of behavior change spirit? It doesn't have to be 12 step meetings, by the way, you know, that's just what works for me, but it doesn't have to. But two things have to happen. Here's the answer to your question. Sorry. I, 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 I circle the plane a lot. It's all good. <laughs> okay. Here's the answer to your question. Two things have to happen. Total abstinence from drugs and alcohol. And yes, I mean marijuana, my friends in Colorado. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Those yes. of us here in Colorado. All mind-altering substances, <laughs> you know. Not not caffeine. Okay, let's be clear. Caffeine's okay. <laughs> um but uh, and there has to be behavior change. And that behavior change can come from 12 step meetings. It can come from therapy. It can come from church, yoga, CrossFit, community, whatever. But those two things have to happen in order for the change that you're talking about to exist. Just getting rid of alcohol for 30 days doesn't make you sober. It makes you dry. OK, yeah. have you ever heard the term dry drunk? Yes. So someone that's just not drinking or just not using is what we call a dry drunk. Their behavior hasn't changed. If anything, it can get worse because they don't have their medicine. Yeah. And what's we again, it is so interesting because there are so many parallels to this because I consistently if someone is not ready to leave, first of all, it's not my job to force them to do anything. Nope. It, right. Everyone has their own choice, autonomy. And so what I'm telling them, and I wish, hey, all professionals that are dealing with, you know, intimate partner violence and course control in the family court system, I hope you're listening, because there needs to be sustained behavior change and sustained is not 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, that sustained change. So when someone hasn't left yet, or they're, they're, you know, crossing their fingers I think that, you know, they're like, okay, so alcohol's gone, drugs are gone. And it's like, is the behavior change sustainable? Is it long-term? If not, they're not changing. It's not well, different. Yeah, we're just burning the candle at both ends. So, but here's the other thing. Here's the other element that I would throw into this. And this is another Kevinism that I, I, I really love saying is, you cannot expect somebody else to do something you're not willing to do. So if they're going to go to treatment or go to 12 step or go to therapy or do whatever it is to get abstinent around a behavior pattern and, and change abstinent around drugs or alcohol and change their behavior, guess what you have to do? Mm -hmm. You have to do the exact same thing. And I'm not saying you got to go to 30 days of treatment because that's, un that's unrealistic for someone who's at home taking care of the kids. And by the way, we can have a whole other discussion about how much harder it is for a woman to go to treatment than it is for a man. I yeah. mean, that's, and that's just the God's truth. And, um, yep. but you know, it's not, it's so like you said, it's not just enough for them to quit drinking 30, 60, 90, um, or even six months, but the whole family system has to change. 
not just the individual. It's, it's it, the old school methodology. The old school patterns are we're going to take somebody out of the system, place them somewhere else for X amount of time, bring them back into the system and wonder why they fail. Yep. You know, and, and the family fails, too, because, you know, the, the, this is their opportunity to make massive change in their behavior as well. And, it, and when I say that, I don't mean it's about monitoring the alcoholic or the addict. It's not. It's about learning to say, you know what? That's not my problem. That's your problem. My problem is that I accept your problem and that yeah. I end up working on your problem more than I take care of me. And, and so it's about getting help for that and changing that. And, and, and by the way, there's, there's a great program in Denver for kids called the Betty Ford Children's Program yes. that my friends run. And I, I got to tell you, I'm their biggest pimp. I love that place. You know. Yes, we refer because in my practice, we work mostly, I don't know if mostly is the right word, but probably two thirds of our clientele are kids and teens. Yeah. And so we have used the Betty Ford program as a referral often. I'm a, a huge believer in them. I love those guys. They're Lindsay and Catherine. They're all, I just think they do. They do the Lord's work is what they do. There's, I mean, however you want to look at that, but they, they yeah. just really, they get in there and they, and I've gone and I've observed the program a couple of times and I got to tell you, I'm a guy that can hold his emotions pretty good. I ball every time when I see these kids talking about what it's like to hide under the bed, you know, what it's like to have the cops show up, what it's like to be in, you know, child services or foster care. And you're just like, Oh, you know, yeah. and, and again, now we're at the crossroads of the addiction, alcoholism and the physical, you know, the abuse. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it happens a lot. And I think and I don't know, I, you know, I wish there was like the silver bullet, like do this, everyone to to fix these issues. But because the issues are so largely s- systemic and a larger yep. picture, my audience wants to know when they are no longer the buffer between the addicted parent or abusive parent and their children, what can they do to protect their kids, right? So they've left. And in most of the United States, it doesn't actually matter if the other parent has an addiction or if they're abusive, they will get time with their children unsupervised. And so that's where my audience is stuck in that place. And so I talk a lot about what they can do to help their children build that resilience and heal. Do you think it is that they are in a no win in that situation? Like what are things like in an ideal world? In an ideal world, this is like the Kevin and Sybil ideal world (laughs) systems. What would happen for these kids and these protective parents. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, <laughs> by the way, I thoroughly agree with you that our that our system does not uh, do a very good job of handling this and having worked in a Medicaid environment for 3 years, I would also say we were completely overloaded. I oh, mean, yeah. and, and I mean just completely overloaded and I actually worked there when the uh, Aurora theater shootings happened and, and the and Arapahoe High School, we responded to that. My team responded to that. Uh, and, and, you know, we got, we were already over, overbooked and we just got flooded. And, yes. and, you know, and it was just incredible. I think, you know, so in a perfect world, <laughs> so I'll answer the perfect world first. Yes. Perfect world. 
my successful families that I work with are in an engaged where I can, that first, oh shit phone call is like, yes, I have a plan based on how to deal with this crisis. I mean, I call it triaging the crisis. I can help you triage the crisis. I can help you set the boundaries. I can help you find legal resources. Whatever you need, we'll get that done ASAP and we'll make everybody safe. I would direct them to you if there was physical violence because that's really your world and it's not mine. I have to be clear. It's not mine. Uh, Mine is how to deal with a family that's struggling with addiction in the system. So that if we can lay down that first phase, lay down the boundaries and get all that accomplished and we've created the barrier, whether it's incarceration, treatment or separation or whatever it is, and we've got that in a safe environment, let's just pretend. Mm-hmm. Then to get the, the healthy piece is really digging into the family system and talking about things like codependency, trauma, recovery. What does it look like for everybody? Because one of the really interesting things is that in, in the lifestyle and the life cycle of every family, every family member takes a turn being in the middle. You know, mm-hmm. dad gets a new job. Mom gets a new job. Mom goes back to college. Dad goes back to college. Kid goes to college. Kid breaks their leg. You know, fill in the blank. They go in the middle and everybody circles them and then they come back out because their situation is resolved. Addicts and alcoholics go in the middle and they never come back out. Mm-hmm. So that's why we have to change the family system because the, the one of the biggest mistakes families do is that when the person gets sober and they don't do their work or take care of themselves, they don't implement change into the way they're engaging with that person and with themselves. So that when the person comes back to the family, they're still the center of, of the universe you know, and we're all standing around like, oh, well, we don't want to do anything to upset you and we don't want to make you mad and we, mm-hmm. and we don't want to threaten your sobriety. And it's like, you know what? That behavior pattern has to change. And the way that changes is we start taking care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then we got to start addressing issues like, well, that makes me selfish. You know, that makes me a bad person. No, it doesn't. It makes you a healthy person. And there's a lot of belief systems that have to get changed. I'm sure it's exactly the same. For yes. You. You know, it's similar. Yes. I mean, it's gotta be like parallel universe <laughs> and, yep. and then helping the kids and then, then teaching people how to speak up for themselves. But I'll tell you a lot of times the families I work with, when they start to speak up, they, cause the, what's their model, their model is to be hyper aggressive and overbearing. So they go over here and they, and it, it all starts over again. I'm like, no, 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 we can just say, hey, I'm not comfortable with this and, and I'm going to pull back and I'm going to take care of me, uh, but I'm not going to go over the line and start telling you, well, here's what you need to do, you know, mm-hmm. here's how you need to live. And here's here's what, you know, it's like, no, no, I'm just I'm going to take care of me. I don't like the way I'm being spoken to. Therefore, I'm going to pull out of this conversation or, or I'm just using a supposed, you know, mm-hmm. but anyway, I did I answer the question? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, because in the sense of. That is kind of the work of the healing is like, how am I responding and how am, how am I going to respond differently to, in my world, someone who isn't going to change? Because there isn't change. Oh, no. Yeah. In the uh, When there's someone who has, and we Kevin and I talked about this offline, but someone who has narcissistic or personality disordered type traits, someone who does not see that there is anything wrong with what they're doing at all 
they are not going to change. And so it really is, whether you're dealing with addiction or not, at, at some point you are going to change how you respond. And then kind of like what Kevin said is that there there has to be safety first for you to do that. So that's sort of some of the work we're doing and where our system is breaking down right now is that they don't support the safety first. Yep. And then let's figure this out. And so that I think, right, in this like magic world, they would there would be the resources. People would believe you. People would actually believe you about what you've experienced. <laughs> and then there would be resources yeah. to help you and your family find safety. And then, which I think this is better, done much better actually in the addiction world than it is in the intimate par- partner violence world, is accountability. Yeah. Like yeah. there is none in our in our world. There is very little accountability yeah. for so many, re- I mean, so many reasons. And so I think, but sim- same thing you had said, and I wanted to touch on it and, and it just popped in my head again and I had forgotten about it, but something that you had mentioned, and I don't know exactly how you mentioned it, but is that people see this, I think it's when they come to see you, they come to you with an incident model. Yeah. Like this thing happened. Yeah. And that's how still the majority of people see coercive control and how they see domestic violence is there was an incident. Right. But no, there was, it is the way of the whole process and the system working and the abuse started at the first date. Absolutely. And, and, and I, my gosh, I totally, I agree with everything you're saying. And it's the, you know, the funny thing is it's the, it's, it's sometimes, and you're the expert, not me, and I'm not trying to say anything different. Sometimes it's not even the actual physical violence. It's the threat of the physical violence that yes. you're, you're not even willing to bring up the conversation because of the blowback that could potentially come, whether it's, you know, abandon, emotional abandonment, uh, you know, yelling, cornering, threatening, bullying, or f- actual physical, you know, violence, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And so it's, you learn early on just to keep your mouth shut and not say anything and just suck it up. Yep. That's by the way, the exact same thing in, in the addiction world. I mean, we call, we call that codependency, right? You know what I call it? Family of origin trauma, because mm-hmm. you learned that somewhere, you know, you yeah. didn't just pick that up off the streets, you know, and somewhere that was modeled for you that, you know, yeah. you're just better off being a good little girl and sitting in the corner and getting good grades and making everybody happy and, and, but that doesn't work. Oh my God, mm-hmm. that doesn't work. You know? Okay. Well, maybe I should reach over the line and start controlling his behavior. Well, that's not going to work, you know? No. So all the skill sets that you've been taught don't work. So what are we going to do? You know? And, and the answer really is, well, we're going to start setting some boundaries and create safety hundred percent, no questions asked. And then we're going to change the way the family works. We're going to, and the way we change the family works is by changing how the individuals work. Right. I mean, that's, that's the only way you change the family. One of the things that I always use analogy I always use is, you know, um, people come to me and it's like, I'm a consultant and they're like, my business is failing. I don't know why there's something Mm -hmm. wrong with my business. And I'm like, okay. And I kind of look around and identify like, oh, well, okay. It looks like this one member of your business is really struggling and it creates a rippling effect throughout the system. And they're like, okay, well, we'll just fire them and get rid of them. And I'm like, (laughs) well, 
okay, but I'm willing to bet you've fired those people before and the system just keeps perpetuating. And they're like, yeah, "Yeah, you're right. So firing the receptionist isn't going to solve the problem. What we have to do is change the management style. And the in the world that I work in, and the and the the good situations, the good news, and it actually happens fairly often, is that we get to a certain level of family recovery where the addict and the alcoholic is paying attention and doing whatever they need to do. The family is doing whatever they need to do, and everybody's just kind of cruising along, taking care of themselves, and that way they're better off. It doesn't always work. That doesn't always stick. But in the in the good spaces, that's what it looks like. It doesn't look like, oh, he's sober now. Everything's okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. that's like saying, and, well, he stopped hitting me, so it must be okay. Everything must be okay. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's, I think, and you probably would agree with this, the, I don't know if it's solely education or sure. informational, okay. but- if our larger systems really understood what it looks like, what these things entail, what healing takes, that accountability is necessary, that all of those things, then things would, they would work. They would work. I mean, I can testament, I mean, I'll be a testament to it that I grew up in that household, became an addict, got sober, became a mental health person. And then in my journey of sobriety, I ended up starting addressing my codependency and, and you know, it started making massive changes in the way. And I'm fortunate and blessed to have a wife who's sober also. And she grew up uh, in, in, in a similar family environment, family family situation. And she and I together work on our, our codependency. And I have an amazing therapist that I see that she's like, when we first met, she's like, you know, Kevin, the way I work is I process grief and loss through trauma. How does that feel? I'm like, You're like, yeah, I think I will not do that. Yeah, that I don't horrible. want to do that. <laughs> that that's awful. Thank hard. you. <laughs> and it's the best thing that ever happened. To, well, my wife's the best thing that ever happened to me, and and which is true. I'm not being solicitous. It really is. Um, yeah. And and we have problems, you know, and and everybody has problems. That's okay. Um, but. It's, it's the support. It's the system of support. So when I talk about a family getting healthy and doing individual therapy, individual recovery work, part of that is finding a community of people that are doing the same thing you're doing. That is yeah. truly the most successful way to recover from that environment is to find that community and follow that community's tenants. Yes. And you are just like marketing for me. You're like my commercial right now as you say that, because this is why I started the Rising Beyond community. It is a community of survivors who are dealing with the same stuff, who are dealing with the same systems, who are trying to heal themselves so they can help their children heal too. So, and, and it's so nice to hear because you know, there is this very medical model still within the therapy community of like, we will fix you. We will fix you. And if we can't, here's a pill. <laughs> <laughs> and so the healing within community. Yeah. And I feel like um, the addiction world has done this way better than a lot of other, I don't know, issues or right, like definitely more so than in the domestic violence world. But there was a knowing of we need to get people together. We need to pe- people to share experiences. We need people to heal in that together. So I am grateful for that because I think that model 
has now is now bleeding into other areas where now it makes sense to have a community of survivors like healing all together and and finding connection. So I think that that's probably a testament to that because it works. It works. Funny enough, you just defined 12-step recovery. Yes, <laughs> and, see? And, we are just going to be commercials for each other. It's yeah, great. We, uh, <laughs> there's a, I can send you the link, but uh, Stanford University School of Medicine Department of Psychiatry in 2020 did a study on what's the most successful way to create abstinence. And it's not psychology. It's not therapy. It's not psychiatry. It's not church. It's not CrossFit. It's not yoga. It's not running. It's 12-step recovery. And because of what you just said, it creates a community. And when you create a community, you create an environment of peer accountability and support and love and engagement, acceptance, forgiveness, you know, and, but it's also about it's, and I want to be clear when I say recovery, it's not about just not drinking or doing drugs. Yeah. That's not recovery. It's, it's about, so here, quick, quick, quick concept. 12 steps, right? First step says we're powerless over alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable. That's the last time we talk about alcohol in the 12 steps. Mm-hmm. What will we talk about next? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All you? the other, all the other things that go into this. Yeah. Uh, well, Kevin, I feel like we could probably talk about this all day long because again, there are such similarities yeah. in, and I think that my world or my arena or whatever, I feel like we could learn from the way addiction work has worked. And and we can skip some of the like areas that didn't work, right? Like we can like jump over those and learn from them to really focus on what, what does work. But if someone wants to find you and they are struggling with in their family or they are like, oh my gosh, I, you know, my coworker's family needs Kevin. Where can they find you? So on my website, it's chronichope.us. Now I also have a real active Instagram channel. Uh, it's, it's at Kevin W. Peterson, the Peterson's S E N. And you'll catch a lot of video there talking about this stuff. And I have a TikTok. And I have a Chronic Hope Institute. The Chronic Hope Institute has a, a YouTube page as well. And I, and I do a, like a weekly call-in show with a friend of mine in Texas where we just answer questions. So if your people just have, want to do anonymous questions, they can email. They can email you and you can send it to me. And we'll answer the questions. That's on my YouTube channel. Yeah. And you have a couple books. Yeah, too. Got a couple books. I have Chronic Hope, Families and Addiction, and Chronic Hope, Parenting the Addicted Child. Um, by the way, children can be 36, and <laughs> let's be clear. Um, yes. But those, Audible, Amazon, Kindle. And then I actually, you know, one, I mean, okay, not to be an, an advertisement, but I, I do offer, you know, coaching packages for people around the country, uh, and they start at $500, and that comes with a three-hour educational video system. So, so it's, you know, you can do it at your own pace and, and then both books and then a session with me. That's how it begins. Then we go all the way up to other stuff, but you know, yeah. and we have an office in Denver where we do regular therapy as well. And, and we're happy to work with whoever needs to be helped. Yeah. 
Well, I very much appreciate it. If you were driving, you you didn't write those down. I really hope you did not write any of that down while you were driving. So all of that information is going to be in the show notes and any of the kind of like marketing stuff for this episode. It'll be on in the email that I send out. So join my email list if you haven't done that. But Kevin, thank you so much. And I know that people will have gotten a lot out of this discussion. Oh, thank you. I'm honored and, and feel very fortunate that you uh, asked me to spend time with you and because I just love talking about this stuff. And, and I think I think the work you do is just amazing, you know, and, and I get it. I get the parallels and, uh, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of work to do and we see success. Otherwise, we wouldn't do what we do. Yeah, absolutely. Like there is hope. There is hope. Otherwise, we would not be doing this. We would have burned out a long time ago if we didn't see that. That's so true. Well, thank you all. And thank you all for listening. And I'll catch you on the next episode of the Rising Beyond podcast. If you found hope and support through this podcast, there are a few things you can do to help us continue to provide meaningful and value-packed episodes. First, you can follow and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you're willing, while you're there, you can give us a rating and review, which will help other survivors find us so we can offer them this help as well. And if you have the means and desire to do so, you can click on the Buy Me a Coffee link and help provide a small financial contribution to the show. This allows us to spend more time and energy finding the best guests and providing the most value to you. And if you want to work with me and the Rising Beyond community, go to www.risingbeyondpc.com for details.